Welcome everybody. We're going to get started right at six because we have a lot of material. So while everyone is finding their seats, I'm going to start with every Bible studies favorite instruction. Turn to Genesis 1.1. It's always the easiest one to find. Again, reinforcing the uh, supposition that Genesis is my favorite book of the Bible. And, and it's appropriate tonight because we're going to be talking about the Genesis gap. Is there a gap or are there gaps in the Genesis creation account that mean the, the universe and the earth can be a lot older than we think? Or maybe even not that it's older than we think, just that there are things that happened in Genesis that weren't necessarily revealed. So I've, I recently became aware of gap theory. Not that I hadn't been aware of it, but I had a listener from Real Science Radio who sent me some questions on it um, and, and some, some thoughts on it. And then, and then I listened to a, a preacher who I, I follow who did a, a series on it. And then I heard uh, mention of it in another uh, Bible study. And so since I had two or three streams of information coming at me about the gap theory... Um, I, th I thought I should look into it further. And uh, if you're not familiar, gap theories hold in various ways to either long periods of time during the six days of creation, or that there's a gap of some unspecified time and a variety of events that occur between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And speaking of Genesis and the animals, if you, if you hear chicks in the background, that's because there are chicks in the background because obviously it's too cold to have chickens living outside. That would be uncivilized. And so the chicks are here in the, in the room with us. We'll see how their reaction. And a duck. One duck as well. <clears throat> you won't hear the duck so much, I don't think. Um, so let's read the relevant scripture, which is Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. If you have your Bibles with you, you should be able to find your way there quickly. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So as I say, hearing about this from more than one source, I decided to study it out and present what I find. And I'd call what we're going to review gap theories, plural, because there's more than one flavor. There are, um, I mean, they're all gap theories to one degree or another. Uh, and they all, uh, they all assert there's a gap or gaps in the story. <clears throat> Things that are not explicitly revealed in the scripture, but that are of some significance. Um, Day-age theories maintain that either each day in the creation account, or each morning and evening were actually long periods of time. Depending on which theory, it would depend on how long the period of time. Um, and, and then just straight up gap theory asserts that there exists just one gap, again, of some unspecified time, containing a variety of, event, of events, including the ruin and the ruin of the original creation by sin, and particularly the fall of, of Lucifer that occur uh, between Genesis 1:1 and Genesis 1:2. 
between God created the heaven and the earth and, and the earth was without form and void. So the day-age theory, or any, any theory that asserts that the age of the earth is more than about 6,000 years old, well, I'm convinced these theories can be rejected out of hand based on three scriptural witnesses. If you followed our Bible study, you know we like to keep to the biblical standard of two or three witnesses. So my first witness against long periods of time, theories that contain long periods of time, um, the 1656-year genealogy in early Genesis, <clears throat> um, any attempt to stretch this out to more than about 2,000 years, um, or, or to stretch it out to around 5,000 years or so, would mean that for every generation that's listed in the Genesis 5 genealogies, there are at least two more missing um, those who say, almost as a concession, that the earth is merely less than 10,000 years old, which has always been my concession, anyone who says that the earth is merely less than 10,000 years old is allowing for an additional 5,000 years, somewhere between creation and flood. And, and there, there simply isn't any place in the Scripture to put 5,000 years. We know from the Scripture there are no missing generations between Adam and Seth, because Seth is named as a direct replacement for Abel, who was murdered in Genesis 4.25. There are no missing generations between Seth and Enosh, since Seth named him in, in Genesis 4. Jude says Enoch was the seventh from Adam, right, in Jude 14. So no missing generations between Adam and Enoch, and then Lamech named Noah, so there are no missing generations there in Genesis 5. So a missing generation or two or four or more in between some of the fathers and sons named in the Genesis 5 genealogy, um, but, but not in these cases I just named, would conflict with God's presentation of Genesis as an accurate historical narrative which, by the way, is confirmed by Jesus and the New Testament authors in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Timothy, Jude, and Hebrews, and almost every book of the New Testament uh, treat Genesis as an historical narrative. So anything beyond 1,650 years from Genesis, I'm sorry, from creation to the flood, is unbiblical speculation. And, and frankly, there isn't room in the historical narrative of the Bible for more than a few hundred years, either way, from creation to the cross. There just isn't any room. That's my first witness. Now, the second witness against long periods of time, Exodus 20.11. If you want to go there, you can turn there. Um, I've got a lot of material. I pulled these verses into my notes, and I'm not going to be turning to them. If you think you can keep up, please try. Exodus 20.11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And, and that Exodus 20.11 refutes the day-age theory outright. My third witness, Mark 10.6, where Jesus Christ says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So Jesus leaves no room. For, long, uh, for a long period of time during which either geologic events or biological events took place. 
There's just no room for events to have unfolded like that uh, before the creation of Adam and Eve. And as asserted in other flavors of gap theories and age theories, any assertion that humans existed before Adam is just unbiblical. 1 Corinthians 15.45 tells us, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. So there were no men before the first man. And according to Jesus, the first man was created at the beginning of creation with Eve, like we just saw. So the day-age gap theory and theories of a pre-Adamic race of men and geological features and fossils that imply long periods of time uh, being related to a state of ruin brought on before Genesis 1-2, well, they're all clearly false. And those asserting long stretches of time in early Genesis in order to accommodate naturalistic philosophies like neo-Darwinian evolution and Big Bang cosmology are in error, according to the Bible. And by the way, when it comes to declaring what's true and what's in error, one never need to add the addendum according to the Bible. Because something's either true or in error. And the Bible, as the judge of that, that goes without saying. So let God be true and every man a liar. Now, toward the end of today's study, we'll go over a number of the consequences to consider in addition to the simple biblical refutations that we've already given regarding what I call evolution gap theorists. That's those who advocate a gap to accommodate evolution and and whatnot. Um, But there are others who advocate a gap, and these are believers. These are believers I respect, men who rightly divide the word of truth, who preach the gospel of grace with alacrity and who love the Lord. And and they suggest a gap, not for scientific reasons, and and not necessarily to find long periods of time, but for theological reasons. And so I call them theological gap advocates. So we have evolution gap apologists, and we have theological gap advocates. And we're going to spend most of our time on the theological gap advocates. Um... And and the theological gap advocates assert six specific theological suggestions or requirements for a gap that we will address in this study. Number one, that the Hebrew word wow, W-A-W, which is translated and in Genesis 1, as in, and the earth was without form and void, they, they say that this word should be translated then, or some other form like and then, or but then. Um, And if I reread Genesis 1-2, they would say, God created the heaven and the earth, and then the earth was without form and void. So it's an issue of preference in Hebrew translation. That's number one. Wow. Um, Number two, the the phrase replenish the earth in Genesis 1 implies that Adam and Eve Eve were refilling a formerly full earth that uh, became empty. Number three, the Hebrew phrase tohu and bohu, without form and void, implies a judgment event had taken place 
that rendered the earth without form and void. Um, number four, that the theory of a gap pre-existed Darwin and was held by believers long before the 19th and 20th century claims um, of geologic age came into fashion and caused some to, they say it caused some to appropriate the gap theory for the purposes of facilitating evolution and, and the long ages required. Number four, <clears throat> they say the fall of Lucifer cannot be accounted for without some sort of gap between creation and his appearance in the story in the Garden of Eden. And number six, <clears throat> from the Apostle Paul, uh, Ephesians 1 requires that the body of Christ, as revealed by Paul, was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, implying that the body of Christ is meant to overcome and reconcile disorder in the heavenlies. And so that disorder must have existed before the foundation of the world or before the six-day creation. And so, as I said, I had been familiar with day-age and, and ruin and reconstruction gap theories used in regard to the fossil record and evolution and old earth cosmology. But I was unaware of their existence prior to the modern advent of 19th and 20th century naturalism. Um, nor had I heard the arguments for, uh, that there were theological necessities for a gap. And so now, having heard them, uh, they require an answer. So look, let's look at them in order. <clears throat> Number one, as to the translation of the Hebrew word wow as and. Some scholars and translators of more recent English versions have translated wow as something like but or then or then afterwards the earth became they don't even use form and void they call it a waste and a desolation or something that implies cat catastrophe um, they cite verses like numbers 523 describing the order of events in a legal investigation or a criminal investigation and verses like Deuteronomy 1.19 describing Israel's wandering from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, which didn't take just one evening and one morning. It took a long time. So they say there's room there. Um, and in these two passages, there are two clauses which begin with the Hebrew wow. And they're translated and 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 in the, in the English. But as some scholars observe, the second might more sensibly have been rendered than afterwards. Okay, and then they apply that back to Genesis 1. But translating wow as but or then afterwards, instead of and the earth was without form and void, would first off, it would be a matter of opinion. <clears throat> and, and secondly, no matter how you translate it, it doesn't necessarily indicate a destruction or a gap of any significant time. But merely the passage of time from one description of events to the next description of events. Um, the next one being a state further along in the process. So if one desires to insert a catastrophe, well, this opinion certainly leaves space for that, but it's not demanded no matter how wow is translated, or wall. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Um, so that as a piece of evidence, in my opinion, is fairly weak, and it could go either way. Um, 
Now let's move on to number two. Gap theorists claim that the Hebrew verb milu, translated replenish, in Genesis 1.28, should be translated uh, uh, should be translated refill, right? Or the implication is that Adam and Eve were commanded to refill a world that was previously filled, right? And that's and that's simply not the case for the Old English. In the late 16th and early 17th centuries, when the English, when the English Bible was translated, replenish did not mean to fill again, like it does today. Uh, what it did mean was to fill. Um, the biblical sense of replenish went back to at least the 14th century. The Middle English speakers, uh, who first used replenish, bar, uh, which borrowed its meaning from the French verb replenir which meant to fill. Now, the more modern word we're familiar with, replenish, finds its origin as a verb based on the Latin re, meaning again, and plenum, meaning full. So it's a different etymology. Also, a transitive usage of replenish, even in the more modern English, if you look it up in Webster's 1828, allows it to go either way, fill or refill. And this is a transitive verb in the Hebrew here, meaning the verb refers to a direct object, that object being the earth. Um, and, and the cross-reference to a similar transitive use of the verb in Genesis 9 does indeed point to a repopulating the earth by Noah. And so, judged solely on the biblical occurrences of the phrase, the word, of which these are the only two in the King James Bible, the best gap theorists could claim would be a toss-up, and, and certainly not evidence either way, or proof. It's certainly not proof either way. Again, it's something to consider, but I wouldn't consider it convincing evidence for a gap. Uh, modern versions of the Bible, of the English Bible, starting in the 1940s, updated the translation to read Phil. And, but I prefer a Bible study habit of getting to know the overall story of the Bible better, getting to know the author better, and researching the context, and then the cross-references, and then sometimes even reviewing the Old English, and then sometimes even reviewing the, the Hebrew and the Greek in order to form a, an opinion of the translation. And even here with the Hebrew... <clears throat> I'd rather not do that. I'm sorry, I, I would rather do that, get to know the story and the author and check the references and the cross-references and the English. I'd rather do all that than appeal to what are, at, at best, inferior translations and at worst, corrupt translations that, that have simply introduced disagreement and confusion about what exactly is in the Word of God. And I'm convinced that um, even with its challenges to the modern dumbed-down reader, like me, educated in the government schools, um, if everyone stuck to one Bible, and we were all always reading together from the same Bible, and then doing the work necessary to properly understand it, uh, our teaching and our learning would be more fruitful, and there would be less confusion. Okay, so that's, that's uh, uh, what was the word? Milu. The Hebrew verb milu. That's number two. Now we go to number three. 
Um, <clears throat> let's look at the reference to uh, without form and void. So that phrase in Genesis 1 uh, only has one other cross-reference in the Bible. It's in Jeremiah 4, verse 22, if you want to turn there. And the, the phrase form, without form and void in Jeremiah 4 is definitely related to a judgment. There's no doubt about that. I'll read it. Jeremiah 4, starting in verse 22. For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was up without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. And I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord by His fierce anger. So this is a reference to a judgment of God in anger against Israel. And the reference here is amplified by referring to Genesis 1. By gen uh, referring to Genesis 1-2. So does it demand that Genesis 1-2 conforms to it as a judgment? Or does it imply that the judgment of Israel can be compared to the chaotic state of matter before it had been formed by God? With the latter reference conforming to the original statement. So in Jeremiah, God is angry. He's going to pass judgment and cause Israel to lose her form and become void and be in darkness like it was before even God formed the light. Or birds or mountains or people. So the reference does not demand that Genesis was under judgment, that the creation was under judgment in Genesis 1 at the end of Genesis 1.1, just that God's judgment on Israel will be similar in effect to the formless darkness and void of Genesis 1-2. Now, if you want a gap, well, then if you interpret it that way, there's room to allow for a gap. But, in my opinion, the cross-reference does not require a gap. So that's without form and void, tohu and bohu. Now, number four. <clears throat> Many uh, theologians, scholars, and even believers... Uh, asserted a, a gap theory before the 19th and 20th century. So theological gap advocates, they say that, hey, the gap theory was around long before Darwin, long before claims of geologic age came into fashion. And so one could call this an appeal to authority in a rhetorical sense, and you could just ignore it. But since all of us young earthers automatically assume gap earthers, or I'm sorry, gap theorists, but because all of us young earthers uh, automatically assume that gap theorists are accommodating Darwin, I can understand the I can understand the necessity of the theological gap advocates um, to established that there were gap theorists among believers before Darwin. Um, but I was reminded when I heard this 
of the fact that old earth cosmology and naturalistic theories of origins are not new ideas. Uh, they're not just based on modern so-called science formulated in the 19th and 20th century. In fact, the naturalistic cosmological and biological philosophies of the 19th and 20th centuries were merely the latest versions of similar theories dating back thousands of years. Um, I'm going to present some evidence that ideas of both an ancient universe and or spontaneous and unguided generation of the natural world predate modern science. Um, and, and if I say a word that you think I need to spell, I want to, inc I want to include keywords for the, the viewing audience if they want to look these up. Um, I'll try to spell the words if you want to check me on this. Um, from the 15th to the 11th century BC, we have the Rigveda of Hin Hinduism. R-I-Q-V-E-D-A, the Rigveda of Hinduism, has some cosmological hymns which describe the origin of the universe originating from a golden egg. Um, prime, primal matter remains manifest in, in this Hindu tradition for 311.04 trillion years, and it remains unmanifest for an equal length of time. Um, and with the Hindus, you know, Brahman is known as the first being impossible to know. He is everything as well as nothing. Hence, the Hindu primal matter of the universe could be manifest for four trillion years and unmanifest for four trillion years simultaneously. In fact, for how many, however many trillions of years you like. With Hinduism, there's a lot of, a lot of wiggle room. Um, Egyptian mythology. In Egyptian mythology, the universe emerged from a vast cosmic ocean of nothingness after countless eons. The creator God awoke, and he willed a small island to emerge out of the cosmic sea. So that, that goes back 14, 1500 years, 2000 years before Christ. And then in Greek mythology, according to Hesiod, H-E-S-I-O-D, Hesiod, Four primary divine beings first came into existence in an unspecified gap of time called chaos. And they made the earth, Gaia, and then the abyss, Tartarus, and of course, love, Eros. Um, Anaxagoras, circa 500 BC, A-N-A-X-A-G-O-R-A-S. Anaxagoras believed that everything has always existed, <clears throat> but not in its current form. At, uh, at some point, matter was sent spinning like it was in a centrifuge, and it separated out the different ingredients leading to clumps that would eventually become the earth and other heavenly bodies. And, and this part of Anaxagoras theory is similar to the modern idea of Big Bang cosmology with rotating masses of gas and energy under the influence of gravity slowly forming over the eons into planets and galaxies stars and all that. Uh, we move up to <clears throat> Thales and Anaximander, T-H-A-L-E-S and Anaximander. I'll let you figure that one out. Around 300 BC. They taught that the origin of the cosmos materialized from a primordial mixture of hot and cold, from which the earth formed on the basis of denser elements that sank to the center. Again, somewhat similar to the Big Bang cosmology popularized in the 20th century. 
Then we have ancient ant atomism. I'm sorry, ancient atomism. A-T-O-M, like atoms and molecules. Atomism. Empedocles, around 400 B.C. Titus Lucretius, around 100 B.C., posited random processes for origins and the development of species. And uh, Aristotle, Plato, and others posited uh, design, but, they, but without a, a creative God, around 300 B.C. Uh, fast forward to the 1790s, James Hutton argued that the earth was transformed not by unimaginable catastrophes, as we see in the Bible, but by imperceptibly slow changes over long periods of time, many of which we can see occurring around us today, like the slow erosion of surfaces. So, ideas of a very old universe, certainly older than the 6,000 years presented in the Bible, and an old creation process certainly longer than six days, and naturalistic unguided processes for all of the above have been with us for millennia. And they were always the popular view, by the way. The Bible has never been the popular view. It's never been the, the politically correct view. That's not just the, from the days of Darwin. That goes all the way back. So... People associated with the Bible, whether they were believers or merely religious, asserted the possibility of longer ages than a simple reading of the Bible implies. <clears throat> um, and so we just can't dismiss the possibility that people, even the religious people, have always tended to hedge their bets against the popular view. Uh, the, the, the view that's endorsed by the official church or the official cult or the official government or whatever view was, was fashionable with the so-called scientists. Religious people have always tended to hedge their bets going back thousands of years. So that being said, who were the believers who held to the possibility or even the doctrine as some modern uh, theological gap advocates indicate a uh, doctrine of a gap before the most recent iteration that came to us uh, through Thomas Chalmers. Chalmers is spelled C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S if you want to look him up. Chalmers and others uh, posited gap theory in response to modern naturalism, Darwinianism, and things like that. Most of us are familiar with Thomas Chalmers, who starting in the early 1800s popularized what I call evolutionist apologist gap theory. He attributed the concept to a 17th century theologian, Simon Episcopius, and Chalmers wrote the following, quote, my own opinion as published in 1814 is that Genesis 1 forms no part of, Genesis 1-1 forms no part of the first day, but refers to a period of indefinite antiquity when God created the worlds out of nothing. The, commencement, the commencement of the first day's work I hold to be the moving, the moving of God's Spirit upon the face of the waters. We can allow geology the amplest time without infringing even on the literalist of the Mosaic record. Unquote. And then after he published all that, Chalmers became a divinity professor. So you judge. Uh, but, but who are the others? Let's see who are the others who were religious... Or, or even Christian men um, who advocated a gap theory. 
we'll review them and, and what their level of credibility appears to be. The most comprehensive research on the subject that I could come across comes from a book titled Without Form and Void by Arthur C. Custance. C-U-S-T-A-N-C-E. Arthur C. Custance. It's available online. You can download it. You can read it online. You can search it. And I've taken some ex excerpts from chapter one, titled A Long-Held View. Custance asserts, accurately as best I can tell, that Jewish commentators in the Midrash, uh, the Midrash is sort of a, it's a Jewish Bible commentary uh, dating from the early 3rd century A.D., around 200 A.D. Uh, and there are references to an early pre-Adamic catastrophe affecting the whole earth. Um, there are also possible references in the oldest extant versions of the Hebrew Scriptures uh, called the Targum of Ankelos, O-N-K-E-L-O-S, the Targum, T-A-R-G-U-M, of Ankelos. Um, and, that some, and that some intimation of such a pre-Adamic pre-Adamic catastrophe can be deduced also from analysis of the punctuation marks in the Masoretic texts of Genesis. Some early Jewish writers subsequently built up some cryptic arguments about God's dealings with Israel on the basis of a belief in catastrophe and reconstruction. And some have said that even the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Corinthians is at one point making an indirect reference to this so-called traditional gap theory background in, in the Jewish literature. And, and so we're going to get to Paul, <clears throat> but let's look at the others before Chalmer. Custance writes that a few of the early church fathers accepted this interpretation and based some of their doctrines upon it. Uh, he says it is true that both they and their Jewish antecedents used arguments which to us seem at times to have no force whatever. But that is not the issue, says Custance. He says the issue, the point Custance is establishing is that the idea was out there, even among some of the church fathers, even asserted as doctrine. Although he doesn't give any doctrinal statements uh, regarding that. But then Custance lists in his obviously well-researched and footnoted book, he only references a couple of uh, references to this state of formlessness and void before the six-day creation by Hugo St. Victor, Pererius, and Thomas Aquinas. But if you read the quotes, especially the quotes from Aquinas, they're not really compelling evidence that any of them actually taught a gap theory. They merely acknowledge that the substance was created in some state of disorder before the orderly events of the six-day creation, the orderly events starting on day one. Custance writes that D.F. Payne of the University of Sheffield, England, in a paper published by Tyndale Press entitled Genesis 1 Reconsidered, makes a brief aside that, quote, the gap theory itself as a matter of exegesis antedated the scientific challenge, but the latter gave it new impetus. Emphasis, my emphasis on the new. None of this is really new. Darwin, evolution, old earth cosmology, long ages, none of it's new. <clears throat> Custance, go on, Custance goes on 
to establish that there were allusions to the idea of some sort of gap in ancient forgeries of the so-called Book of Jasher. Jasher, by the way, is a genuine non-canonical lost Hebrew book mentioned in Joshua and in 2 Samuel, for which we have no authentic records. And so if there were allusions to some sort of gap in copies of something called the book of Jasher, that's just not very compelling to me. Uh, he lists other references to a gap, Sumerian and Babylonian fragments, as stated before in the Midrash, and the small marks known as Rebiah in the Masoretic text after Genesis 1-1, indicating a pause of some unknown time, and in the Targum of Onkelos. The, he says there may be a, a participle of a verb, which means to cut or to lay waste, therefore a rendering of, and the, uh, uh, and the earth was without form and void, could be rendered, and the earth was laid waste. That could be uh, an interpretation of the original Hebrew of Genesis 1-2. Um, finally, around 100 A.D. in the Book of Light, or Sefer Hozahar, uh, we can read that, quote, The earth was tohu and bohu, meaning God created them and destroyed them, and on that account, the earth was desolate and empty. To which I say, okay, so the Book of Light, Sefer Hozahar, says that but I'm just going to go with a more literal reading of Genesis. Um, Custance goes on, we have a comment which in the time of our Lord was held widely enough that Paul might very well have known about it. In which case, we may better understand the background of his words writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.6, where Paul said, quote, God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And, and very few will deny that this passage is referring back to Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. Well, Custance believes it makes excellent sense to assume here that Paul had in mind an interpretation of these first three verses of Genesis 1 seeing a situation of ruin that was restored by God's creative power, similar to the ruin of an unbeliever's life restored by the power of the light and the knowledge of God's glory, referred to in Corinthians. And, and, and I, I say it's not an impossible interpretation of Paul's reference, but neither is it demanded by the text, not at all. And there's, there's certainly nothing else I've ever read in Paul that implies anything about a gap. Um, let's see, now we have a, a rabbinical commentary on Genesis. Paul Isaac Hershon, H-E-R-S-H-O-N, Paul Isaac Hershon, has this somewhat obscure quotation, which Custance claims reinforces Paul's analogy, um, and the earth was desolate and void. He says, the earth will be desolate, for the Shekinah will depart, the destruction of the temple. He's comparing the ruin of the captivity and the destruction of Israel um, to Genesis 1. And again, this rabbinical commentary, so it's not completely implausible to, to refer to without form and void when you're talking about the destruction of the temple. Um, it's not completely implausible. But to say it reinforces Paul's analogy, I'm not sure there was an analogy with Paul. That was only somewhat plausible. Um, 
And to infer Paul's analogy is ruin and not merely an analogy to light, it's just not necessary. And, and, and so it's not necessarily accurate. <clears throat> so then we have Hebrews 11.3. The author makes an observation. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. So the significant thing Custance sees in this statement is the context is in the context of ruin and reconstruction because the word rendered framed is the Greek word katartizo, which can be rendered to perfect. It also can be to repair or to restore. So it could be, um, it could it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, Custance also includes, or he concludes by saying this. Now, any one of these points taken alone might carry little weight to the assertion that, hey, people believed in the gap all the way back. Church fathers, believers. But he says, put them all together and they seem to require that we recognize the real possibility that a view of Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, which many today feel strained and improbable, may have fact been generally taken for granted in our Lord's day. So, I mean, there's a selected group of the evidences from the man who appears to have researched this idea of pre-Darwinian gap theory among believers and among theologians and among scholars. Three different groups, by the way. Three theologians, scholars, and believers. Not, not always necessarily with crossover. Um, there you have it. Um, I'll let you decide the weight that should be given to the items documented by Custance. I encourage you to read his book because there's a lot. There's, there aren't any more references to this particular subject, but there is a lot of interesting stuff in the book. Um, but to say that the church fathers or rabbis in general or the Apostle Paul especially, held to a belief in catastrophe and reconstruction between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, in my opinion, is just a bridge too far. Um, based on, on these few rather obscure and rather questionable interpretations. Um, and it appears that while a, a few may have held out such a possibility or referred to the, the fact that some ideas like this existed... I can't see that it was ever taught widely as scriptural doctrine. And again, in the light of the longer history of naturalism, it could be seen as mere hedging against existing old earth and naturalistic cosmologies. Um, just like when Thomas Chalmers reintroduced the subject to combat the idea that evolution contradicted Genesis in the 19th century. So there's your, there's uh, the section on number four that this existed long before Darwin within the church and within scholarly opinion. I'll let you decide. All right, now number five. Some of the theological gap, no, not apologist. Theological gap, now I've forgotten my own. Uh, theological gap advocates, thank you. Some of the theological gap advocates assert that there is a necessity for a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 in order to find a place for Lucifer's fall. Uh, the fall of Satan, right? 
But that assumption rejects that Lucifer became the enemy. He became the adversary at Eve's fall. And we know that simply because God told Satan in Genesis 3.14 that Satan was going to be cursed, quote, because thou hast done this. Not for anything before, but because thou hast done this. Gap proponents have no good argument for why Lucifer had to have fallen prior to Eden, except they say he was introduced as a deceiver um, in, in, the, in the garden, in the story. And, and, and because it says that, you know, the serpent was more subtle than any. And, 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 and so because he was introduced that way, they say, well, he must have fallen before. Well, they just haven't considered that God chose to introduce him in that way because number one the history was being written retrospectively by moses and god chose to blot out satan's former glory from the record and chose to introduce him in an insulting manner in the story that the biblical record that god gave to the world all right now turn to ephesians 1 this is what i would call the big theological gun um, and certainly the most interesting aspect of the theological gap advocate assertions in Ephesians chapter 1, that's the idea that the body of Christ, as revealed by, as revealed by Paul, was chosen before the six-day creation in order to restore disorder in the heavenlies. So this assertion says there must have been disorder before the foundation of the world because Ephesians 1, 3 says, quote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So the verse quite plainly states that God chose the body of Christ before he created the world. That's plain from the text. But does this passage demand that God chose the body of Christ as described by Paul, as revealed by Paul, before he created the world? Or could it merely demand that God determined that people his created people, would be holy and blameless before him in love and that he decided that before he made the world, before the foundation of the world. I assert that it's the latter. And that Adam and Eve, in fact, before the fall, they fulfilled that determination before the fall, right? They walked in the garden and they were before the Lord, holy and blameless. But then the fall happened. Well, but then Israel and the body of Christ are both included in God's effort to ensure that one day future, once the fall is rectified and forever, he will have a people holy and blameless before him in love. It's not that God chose the body of Christ as we know it now. It's that God decided before he made all this that he was going to have people with him eternally before him holy blameless and in love but the theological gap advocates ask well then when did god create the lake of fire because 
The lake of fire, we're told, was created for Satan and his angels in Matthew 25, right? Jesus said, depart from me, ye accursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So they say, well, the lake of fire had to be created after Satan fell. But did it have to be created before Satan fell? When Jesus says that in Matthew 25, is it necessary that the lake of fire existed at that time? Jesus said to his enemies, depart from me into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, I assert that does not necessarily mean the lake of fire existed then. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the lake of fire had to be included in the six-day creation of Genesis 1. And it doesn't mean that the lake of fire was referred to in Exodus 20.11 when God said, I created everything in six days. I assert that the lake of fire was not required to exist in either case. Consider the possibility that God hasn't created the lake of fire yet or or that he hasn't set it on fire yet. All of the material for the lake of fire exists. It's called the universe as we know it, and the world, and the stars, everything. All the material is there. But he hasn't set it on fire yet. Turn to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. So everything required for the lake of fire uh, to... uh, happen or exist, was created in six days at the beginning of creation. And everything that exists, which was very good, by the way, right? When God rested, He said everything was very good. Well, everything necessary for the lake of fire existed at that time. And everything that exists physically only exists because God decided it would exist and how it would exist in the beginning. Scripture indicates that in the beginning, God created all of this and He called it very good. And He decided in His mind that it was very good and how it was all going to behave and the the, the laws of physics and that a fire can't burn forever and this won't be on fire and this will be on fire because of the way God decided things would be. But the scripture indicates that at some point in the future, God is going to change his mind regarding the state of the existence of the physical world and that he's going to do that at the end when 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10, tells us, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are in them, shall be burned up. They shall be burned up. That's the lake of fire. The lake of fire is going to be created from what already exists later at the end. And so God did not need to choose people to repair disorder in the heavenlies before the, the Genesis creation. Lucifer didn't have to fall before the six day creation. The lake of fire did not have to be created before the Genesis creation. All right, now, um, I probably won't have time to go through all these. I, I might. Um, but there are consequences of a gap that we need to consider. 
Evolution gap apologists reject that there was no death before Adam's fall in Genesis 3. And that disagrees with Paul, who wrote in Romans that by one man, sin entered and death passed upon all by one man. Well, who's that man? That's the first man. That's Adam. Now, theological gap advocates say there, were no, there was no human death in this pre-Adamic creation, but that the primordial world was indwelt by angelic beings only who fell in a rebellion led by Lucifer and, and all the death and the fossils and the geological record, they say, are from Noah's flood. Whereas the, the evolution apologists say that everything we see in the geological record, that was from the, the pre-Adamic flood. The Luciferian flood, they call it. Well, theological advocates say, no, that was Noah's flood. Um, but the theological advocate's position does not account for Adam and Eve being confirmed as historical figures by Jesus Christ at the beginning of the creation. Right? That's according to Jesus in Mark 10. And, and it also doesn't account for Exodus 20.11. In six days, God created everything. Um, more consequences. Evolution apologists reject that God made the stars after He made the earth. Why? Well, they prefer billion-year astronomy stories. Theological gap advocates say that the primordial world had no sun or moon or stars, and it was an angelic world, and it wasn't like the world we know at all. The stars and the sun weren't even needed back then, and they were made during the six-day creation. And this, that's a possibility, but it's a bit of a stretch. And it's certainly not necessary for the rest of the Scripture or, or for salvation or for biblical doctrine. And so it's a bit of a stretch in my, in my opinion. Evolution gap apologists reject that there were no thorns before Adam. Theological gap advocates say that we don't even know if there were plants as we know them in this pre-Adamic world before Genesis 1.1. Um, so they agree with us that there were no thorns before Adam. But they disagree, at least to some degree, with Jesus Christ again in Mark 10, who said Adam and Eve were created at the beginning of the creation, with no mention of a previous creation, specifically by Jesus, with the specific implication that they were at the beginning. All right, more consequences. Evolution gap Apologists overthrow the assertion that everything was very good on day six because the gappers claim that a fallen devil already existed. Now, theological gap advocates, they simply exempt Satan from the statement in Genesis 1.31 that everything was very good. Um... They say, well, in that statement, God was not referring to the fallen previous creation, not referring to Satan and his angels created before the six-day creation. He was only referring to those six days. And even though evil existed and evil was present, since God had a plan for the body of Christ to re restore the heavenly governance, he could still say that everything was very good because he had a plan to make it very good even though he knew bad things were going to happen. And so I would just need some more scripture on that. It's interesting to ponder, but I would need more scripture. Because the, the scripture indicates that Satan became the enemy at Eve's fall, right? Again, because thou hast done this. Um, 
<clears throat> Both gap camps reject that Lucifer was in the Garden of Eden when he fell. Right? And according to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, Satan, Lucifer, said, Lucifer was in Eden and he said, I will ascend into heaven. And neither camp has strong, a strong argument for these assertions that Lucifer was in the garden when he fell. Um, now, theological gap advocates claim that Eden, Eden was actually a country that Satan dwelled in that before the catastrophe, there was a country called Eden. And then later, Adam and Eve were placed in a garden in that country of Eden. They were later replaced eastward in that same country after the six-day creation. But again, it's just too speculative to be given any credence, in my opinion. Uh, evolution gap apologists minimize Noah's flood. Of course, they claim the, that the, any biblical and scientific evidence for the flood is actually from Lucifer's flood, which could have been millions or hundreds of millions or billions. Or how many do you need? Are you a Hindu? Do you need four trillion? We'll give you four trillion. However many years you need. That's the uh, evolution gap apologist. Theolo theological gap advocates reject evolution or that there is any recognizable anything left from what they call Lucifer's flood. But they seem to, they seem to keep themselves relatively ignorant or, or uninterested in the significant evidence that Noah's flood... And the catastrophic events of all that actually produce what we see today. Mountains of evidence. And, and also, they reject the mountains of evidence for a world and, that's less than 6,000 years old. Um, finally, evolution gap apologists reject that the crust of the earth is the firmament of day two, with the waters below the firmament, which eventually came up and flooded the earth from the fountains of the great deep. Um... But, I mean, not only gap theorists, but a lot of creationists miss this one. Um, theological gap advocates would just say it's irrelevant. The firmament of day four is a part of the recreation, that six-day recreation. And whatever the firmament is, whether it's the sky or the space or the crust of the earth, they just seem uninterested in solving just what is the firmament. They say it's not really a relevant point. Um, evolution gap apologists claim that there was a true global flood in the first earth age and that it was lucifer's flood and they reject that noah's flood was worldwide generally theological gap advocates say lucifer's flood in fact was universal god flooded the entire universe with water and but they do hold that noah's flood was indeed global as presented in the bible um and they say the evidence that the that the Luciferian flood was uh, universal is that God's Spirit moved on the face of the deep. And, and that's interesting to consider. I mean, was the deep of Genesis 1-2, was it water? Was it everything God needed to make water so He could call it water? It's, it's, it's worth thinking about. Um, both gap camps claim that Peter omitted Noah's flood and that he was referring to Lucifer's flood when Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 5 through 6, Peter criticized those who willfully forget the world that was being flooded. The world that was being flooded, which a, a simple reading 
tells me that was Noah's flood, the world that was, which was flooded. So they say, no, that, that's something else. I just don't know where they get that. Uh, they also, both camps reject John's description in Revelation 21.1 of today's earth. As we know it, it's called the first earth. J John says, for I saw the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and God made a new heaven and a new earth. Not, not a third heaven and a third earth, but a new heaven and a new earth, which implies that that was the original. Um, finally, evolution gap apologists reject the mass of scientific evidence supporting young earth. And I'll just list short-lived carbon-14 everywhere where it's not supposed to be, like in coal, oil, marble, diamonds, dinosaur bones, etc. Soft tissue, including blood cells in dinosaur bones. Um... Flat gap, uneroded boundaries between Grand Canyon layers and around the world. Transient elements of the so transient events in the solar system like comets and meteors. And there's a whole world of evidence. And the, the theological advocates, just, they just insist they don't care about all this. How old the earth is doesn't matter, they say. It's the recreated earth that, that's only about 6,000 years old and... However much time there was before that, it really doesn't matter. And so I think that the theological advocates are handing our adversaries ammunition that they don't deserve, and they should become more interested in studying the creation. And so there, that's my presentation on the gap in Genesis. I'm thankful that I got the input from the people I did and that uh, we've had a chance to do this study. We'll look forward to getting, everyone, uh, getting together with everyone next week. Should the Lord tarry, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Genesis, for a simple historical narrative that tells us where we came from. And we appreciate your entire word, which tells us where we are and where we're going. And we look forward to studying it more with you. And we just look forward to getting together again and looking into your word and getting to know you and getting to know the story better. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.